Um, we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 18. So you can go ahead and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 18. Our plan here, folks, is that the Word of God changes lives. And the steady diet of receiving the Word of God just has the effect of changing people. You probably won't notice it, uh, but a few months goes by, a year goes by, and all of a sudden you say, you know what, I think I'm different. Uh, God is doing a work within me. And so that's why we're just moving right through the Bible. Uh, And we were in chapter 17 last week, and as we concluded chapter 17, uh, essentially David, King David, declared, not necessarily with his words, but with his actions, this idea, you know what, I may not be able to build a temple, but I can certainly help others get the job done. And so David got busy about gathering up items to support Solomon in his effort to build the temple, and the temple would eventually get built during Solomon's day. That's why we call it Solomon's temple. But in reality, it's probably David's temple. He's the one who gathered all the materials for it. And David there, he refused to focus on those things that he could not do, and instead he focuses on what he could. Valuable lesson for us. Now, in our chapter today, this is going to be a chapter about a series of military victories. And you might look at it and you might think, all right, why is this in the Bible? What what can I learn from the fact that he went to this city, beat him, went to that city, beat him, went to that city, beat him? But then... We're reminded of that scripture in the New Testament that says that all scripture, all scripture, is God-breathed, that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training uh, to to raise the saints up in righteousness. And so if we really believe that one word, all, then chapter 18 is a very important chapter of scripture. All chapters are important in scripture. So what is it that God could have us and teach us? And so I want to take us through these battles, sort of give you the kind of the historical aspect of things, and then I want to make some applications for us today. Alrighty, so as we move through chapter eight or into chapter 18, we're going to see a series of victories. I'll read it to you in a minute. Two things are going to come as a result of these victories. Keep these in your mind as we move forward. Number one, the spoils, if you will, we'll call it that. Uh, the gold, the silver, the bronze, all those things that they were able to gather up during those victories. Number one is they would all be turned around, if you will. They were used for this, but now they're going to be used for that. They were turned around and used for the temple building, okay, the structure, that magnificent structure, which was considered and today would even be considered a wonder of the world. All right, it's not standing right now, but someday it will again, we know from the scripture. But secondly, I would say the significance of these victories is it allowed the nation of Israel, and particularly David's, the place where David's seat was uh, his administration ruled from to enjoy a period of peace and it was that peace that allowed people to come and to worship in that temple without fear that it was going to be overrun or ransacked or anything like that without fear of being attacked so those are two significant aspects of these battles but i'll talk to you more about them as we move forward let's read verse one we're going to read up to verse 13. chapter 18 verse 1. now after this david defeated the philistines and he subdued them And he took Gath and its villages out of the hands of the Philistines. After, excuse me, and he defeated Moab. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobahamath, as he went to set up his monument at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but he left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David, and they brought tribute. 
And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem, and from Tibhath, and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer. David took a large amount of bronze. With it Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. And when To, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent his son Hadoram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with To. And he sent all sorts of articles of gold and of silver and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he had carried off from all the nations, from Edom, from Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And again, it says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, one of the things that you'll, you've probably noticed now as during our study of First Chronicles, and we've basically been going one chapter a week, so we've been doing this for about 17 weeks or so, is there's very little mention of King Saul. Now, remember, King Saul was David's predecessor. He was the first king of the nation of Israel, ruled the nation for about 40 years, and there's virtually no mention of him uh, in the book of First Chronicles, just simply that he died and that David replaced him as the king. And then the rest of the book goes on, and it, it follows the life of David. But if we read over in First and Second Samuel, then we discover a whole lot more uh, about King Saul. But even in our brief discussion of Saul in this particular passage, what we have come to see is that the perennial enemy of the nation of Israel during the reign of King Saul and during the early years of King David, the perennial army is these Philistines. And it was their persistent infringement on the nation which limited the nation under King Saul from really moving forward and acquiring all that God had intended that they would acquire. So in chapter 18, verse 1, when it says, after this, David defeated the Philistines, that's a significant verse. That's changing everything around. All the experiences that they've had in the past Everything is brand new. Now, the Philistines are located primarily south and west of Jerusalem. So if you look at the map that we have here, you'll notice the arrow on the coast. That's roughly today what we call the Gaza Strip. That's where the Philistines are located. You can also see the blue star that I've placed roughly in the middle there, um, just sort of on the northwest coast of the Dead Sea. That's the nation of Jerusalem. So that's, what, that's where David will be ruling. So it's significant that these people to the west of the, the capital city are finally dealt with. And David subdues them. Now look on to verse 2. And in verse 2 we read about the second nation that David comes against. And they, they are the people that are called the Moabites. And we have a map of them. And you can see that the Moabites are located just to the east of the nation of Jerusalem. So you see the arrow pointing. You see the star where Jerusalem is. And so now David has dealt with those nations on the west. David has dealt with those nations on the east. Those nations that persistently were coming against Israel and hindering it from being all that God wanted it to be as a nation and the peace that he wanted them to enjoy. Then, as you move on to verse 3, David dealt with the east, David dealt with the west. Now David is going to turn his attention to the north. So verse 3 says, David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, Hamath, as he went to set up his monument at the river Euphrates. Now the area of Zobah, Hamath, um, in our passage, it tells us it's up near the Euphrates. The Euphrates is way up to the extreme north of Israel. And so uh, that is where you find that particular city. 
that is there. And it was there coming against the king. The guy's name is Hadadezer. Some of your versions might say Hadarezer, um, same fella. But it was there in that extreme north that David enjoyed another victory. Specifically, it says in verse 4 that David took from this king 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And then it goes on and it says that he hamstrung all the chariot horses, but it left enough for 100 chariots. Now, you might hear about the hamstrunging of these horses and think one of two things. Some of you might think, oh, the poor horses. You know, that's terrible. Look at my wife. She's all sad right now. All right, these poor horses, uh, that might be one way you might look at it. Uh, others of you might think, well, that was a dumb idea. You could use those horses. It's like having the keys to a tank or something. You know, you could, you could put the key in and turn it as well. Why don't you use those horses for that particular thing? Well, let me address those. As far as, you know, feeling bad for the horses, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Um, one thing I will tell you, this doesn't necessarily kill a horse. It, it basically excludes them from military service, though. It's the cutting of this, I'm sure Will could tell you specifically what, uh, a hamstring, there you go. Um, but it basically, it prevents them from being able to gallop. And so they're not really good for war. They can go around and march kids around on pony rides, but uh, that's about it. That's all they got left to do. Alrighty, so this is a good way to kind of limit them from coming against you again. Alrighty, and then just as far as feeling bad, because that probably hurt the horses, I'm sorry. But for those that are wondering about the wisdom of killing these, or uh, basically maiming these animals and not using them, you can use them for your team uh, and your army or whatever, then I would turn your attention. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This wasn't a tactical blunder on David's part. Rather, it was a mark of wisdom, an act of wisdom because he was obeying what the scripture says. Deuteronomy 17, it says, One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, it says, this king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said you shall not go that way again. God's intention was that it would become very clear that the victory wasn't because of the accumulation of horses or the raising, uh, g gathering lots of weapons or tanks or all these sorts of things, but that God was the one that was going to give them the victory. And God knew that some king would come along and he would start gathering up all these things. God gave them to me, God gave them to me, God gave them to me. Look what I have, look what I have, look how wonderful I am. And soon forgetting that it was God that was given these victories. And so God said, don't even accumulate them. It prompted David in Psalm 20 to say, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The name, the idea of like the banner going forth into the battle. He's leading us into battle here. And so David responds well in this instance to that. His decision here is an act of obedience. It's a, it's a statement of trust. Imagine, imagine if during our recent presidential election, the issue of foreign policy came up and they said, you know, to the candidates there, what's your plan for foreign policy? You know, how are you going to protect us? And imagine if one of them said, well, we're going to go into every battle in the name of the Lord. Okay, great. You know, what about military? What about uh, weapons and tanks and drones and airplanes? None of it. We're going to trust in the name of the Lord. You would think he was a lunatic, right? But nonetheless, in this nation, this theocracy in which God was governing, this is what God said for David to do. And so uh, others might have thought it was crazy, but David said, you know what? I'm just going to follow what the Lord tells me to do. I'm going to be obedient. And so he is. Now, as we continue into verse 5, we see the Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, he reaches out to the Syrians. And he says, we need a little help here. 
And so Syria, which is a neighboring nation, you can look at the map, they're a neighboring nation up to the north, just as it is today, the neighboring nation to the north of Israel. They come to uh, Hadadezer's support, and they come against David. I'll read it to you. It says, Now when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And he put garrisons uh, in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants of David. So this was a very bad idea on the part of the Syrians uh, to come against David here. They, they aligned with the wrong people uh, against the wrong guy. And notice, 22,000 men fell. 22,000 men, hand-to-hand combat. No machine guns, no Uzis, you know, no bombs blowing up, killing these people. Hand-to-hand combat. This is some battle. Uh, and 22,000 of the Syrians fall. David's men are victorious. Move on to verse 6. As you continue on in that verse, we are reminded of this truth, lest we forget, especially David, lest he forget. It says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Important. God working through David to deliver the nation of Israel and give it its freedom uh, and, and its peace. Now you move on to verse 7 and 8. And we're moving quickly because I want to focus on something toward the end. Verses 7 and 8, David then takes the spoils of these victories, and it says that it includes large amounts of gold and bronze, and he dedicates those to the temple of the Lord. Remember, this is David's goal. I can't build the temple, but I'm still not interested in building myself big palaces to live in. Remember he said last week, this isn't right. I live in this palace, and the ark of God is under a tent. And so David here is determined that he's going to use any of his successes to push forth the name of the Lord. Verse 7 says, David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem. And from Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, he took a large amount of bronze. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. The mention there of Solomon and the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels and so on, they were all used in the temple. And so we see David's purpose here is to accumulate these things, hand them off to his son so that his son can build uh, the temple. Again, David refused to focus in what he couldn't do, and instead he focused on what he could. Well, as we move to verse 9, I think we, we turn to the smartest guy, maybe other than David, in this entire chapter, and it's a fellow by the name of Tu, or Tu, I don't know how you say it, but you get the idea. Uh, look at verse 9, it says, When Tu, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent his son, Hadoram, king, to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he didn't want to get beat up too, uh, is basically what it says, because he had fought against Hadadezer and he defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Tau. So basically, the enemy of my enemies is my friend, is the philosophy here. But I think there's also sort of a mark of, of wisdom here on this guy's part. He can see what's happening. Everyone that goes up against David is getting routed. And so he decides, I'm not getting routed. I'll make friends with this guy. I love how he sends his son. You know, hey, if something happens, he doesn't accept the offering. At least I'm alive. You know, sorry, son. You know what I mean? But, uh, so he sends his son there. Now this guy, Toe, as far as history is concerned, we don't really have a reference to a man by the name of Toe. They think that Toe was a title, like the pharaohs. They were titles. So there was this pharaoh and that pharaoh and so on and so forth. So we think Toe was a title of people that ruled up in that, that northern portion of Israel. Uh, but this guy here in particular, he says, I'm getting on David's good side. And so he sends him. Notice it says in verse 10, he sends him gold and silver and bronze, all these things that are going to be used into the temple. And again, notice that David wisely dedicates it to the Lord. Lord, it's yours. 
And anything I receive, it's yours when I'm giving it back to you. Well, this little section concludes in verse 11, and it says, These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he had carried off from the nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the Ammonites, the Philistines, and from Amalek. Now, if you, if you were to take a look at the map here, I think, and we'll try and do it slowly, and Tareen, I didn't talk with you about this, so hopefully you're, you're tracking with me on this particular one here. Uh, I, I want to try and show you sort of where David's victories are. We've already read about some of them, and then we have a few other verses here. The first people that David came against, our first map, is that people down there, the Moab. We don't have the Philistines there? Or are they the next people? Okay, so the first people are... It was the Philistines over here on the left. Then you have the Moabites. All right? That essentially deals with David's southern borders uh, and his east and his west. Okay? Then the next people you have is where Zobah was at the top here, I believe, and Syria. So you have Zobah and Syria that are up there. So he kind of deals with that northern area. Now we learn also that uh, the Edomites, drop them in here in red, I think. All right? So we have the Edomites. Then we also read about the Amalekites, show where they are, please. Okay, the Amalekites. And then also the people of Am Amnon or Ammon, the, the Ammonites. Do we have them coming up? All right, so do you see here? And, and David's not too concerned about the navies coming against them in that day. There were no navies. So uh, David basically has secured the nation. We're protected. Even today, what do the enemy nations of Israel say? We're going to drive Israel into the sea. We're going to wipe them off the face of the map. And so David very wisely set himself up a nice border. And this is not going to be to David's benefit. David's going to die, but it'll be to his son's benefit. And then something else? So I appreciate here, and I think what he is trying to do, remember the second point, one, he's acquiring all this wealth. I think that was really just a fringe benefit. I think what he really wanted to do was create a place of peace so that when this temple is built, the people can enjoy that place of peace. So David had secured the nation. Here's a final map you can look at. This is essentially the expanse of David's kingdom that you can see there. So m quite a bit bigger than what Israel is today um, that he expands into. And this is pretty much at the end of David's life and just a little bit into the beginning of Solomon's life, this is pretty much the zenith of the nation of Israel. This is where it had grown to its largest expanse of borders and very, very close, but not complete, but very, very close to what it says in Genesis 15. When God spoke to Abram, just a man, one guy, and his wife and nephew, and he said, I'm going to give you three, ultimately you, Abram, I'm going to give you all this land. This is what he said. Genesis 15 says, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, remember we learned about that, all the way down here to all the way up there, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, uh, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, all those people that lived in between, I'm giving it to you three people. That was a remarkable promise that I don't think I would believe. If somebody told me that, if God told me that, I'd say, I don't know, God, that's kind of hard for you to do. All right, but it, the scripture says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the reason why he is the father of our faith, because he believed. And that land is pretty much what David expanded his borders to. Not exactly. We know ultimately that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. We look forward to that day, certainly. But again, as it says in verses 6 and 13, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, I want to make one final application here to our lives, if I may. And it's a point that's beyond 
the historical fact of these military victories enjoyed by some king 3,000 years ago who cares you know what I mean like we could look at it that way what's the big deal who cares what happened here and I, I but I do think there's a point of application for us in our previous studies the last few weeks one of the things that we saw is that David had become the king of all of Israel remember David was an outlaw running from the previous king who was trying to kill him he was public enemy number one uh, Israel's most wanted and then uh, circumstances are such he becomes the king of one of the tribes and he continues in that particular role for about seven years as king of one of the tribes and then finally all of the tribes come to David and they said we want you to be the king of all of Israel and David does so he conquers the city of Jerusalem he makes that his capital city and so on so David is the king of all of the people of Israel but David wasn't content to be the king of all of the people of Israel he wanted to be the king of all of the land of Israel as well and unfortunately, until that day or up uh, during that period of time, there were still enemy nations living within the borders of the land promised by God to the people of Israel. And David essentially said, you know what, I, no, this is not going to happen. We can't do this. And I think there's a, there's a valuable lesson here because I think David's response to these surrounding nations that are both within or just outside of the borders that are coming against him, it can be viewed for each of us as a type of, for us as Christians who are seeking to follow God and yet we are harassed by those enemies both within and without. And I'll talk about what I mean by that as we continue to move forward here. We saw so far already today that David conquered the Philistines to the west and he conquered the Moabites to the east. He conquered the Syrians and this guy Zobah, this uh, city of Zobah to the north, and he conquered the Edomites to the south. Let's just break pause here for application purposes. And, and let's just look at those first two cities, the first, or countries, whatever you want to call them. Philistines to his west, the Moabites to the north. Because I think you have a great picture here of what it means for the follower of Christ to grab a hold of the victory that is ours as a result of the work of Christ in our lives, starting with the Moabites. Now the Moabites, they were a nation not within the borders of Israel, but just outside of Israel. They were on the out, just sort of harassing, harassing, harassing. We see again and again in the scripture that the Moabites would come against the, the nation of Israel as sort of this perennial enemy and would get them to compromise, would get them to uh, limit where they were moving forward to and all these sorts of things. Regularly, constantly compromised through intermarriage, we see. And I think as a people of God, there's a similarity to our walks with God. Because from without, there are the temptations. And it comes against us and it lures us, and it draws us to itself, and it says, come on, it's better over here. It's better this way. Do it this way. Do it this way. And from without, those temptations are there coming against us, and we are pulled to it. And I appreciate that David has victory over the Moabites and gives a lasting victory to the nation of Israel because if I use the type and I bring it to my Christian walk, what does that tell me? It tells me that those temptations that seem to be so strong, those temptations that have come against me time and time again, and I've failed, time and time again, and I've given in to those temptations, it tells me that I don't have to perennially live in that defeat, but that I can have a victory over that. So when I'm tempted and drawn away by a particular lust, and maybe I've given in to that lust time and time again in the past, I don't have to give in to that lust any longer. If I'm tempted and I'm drawn away uh, by someone that is just infuriating me, and I just want to let them have it and give it to them, and in the past I have let them have it, and I felt a whole lot better uh, when I did. 
But I know that, you know, this isn't right, though. This isn't what God would have me to do. I know that I can have victory in that particular area. So all of these temptations, if I'm temptation to steal or to lie or to cut corners and all these sorts of things, and I've done it in the past, and I'm always defeated by those Moabites that come against me, I know that I don't have to give into it again now in the present. I can have victory. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. I think, I was telling a group of students from Mercer County College this week, I think it was one of the most important Bible verses that I memorized in my early days as a Christian. And the reason why is because I believe the Scripture, one, and I believe the truth of this verse. And this verse inspired me, if you will, in many ways that I could walk forward with Christ and I didn't have to give in to defeat. This is what it says. It says, No temptation has overtaken you as except as common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Isn't that great truth? For people that don't want to give in to temptation, I hope that's all of our desire. You know, we want to walk with the Lord. We don't want to fall in sin and these sorts of things. And to know that God promises us that no matter what temptation comes against us, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, no matter how enticing, that there's always that way of escape if you're willing to take it. That's incredibly good news. Because I know that victory is mine. It's just a matter of me kind of looking, oh, there's the door, and finding the way out of this particular temptation. That's a great truth. It's a matter of if you want it or not. But victory is ours. I love what Alan Redpath says, and Jay Seidel quotes all the time, that we don't fight for victory as Christians. We fight from victory. The victory has already been won in the work of Christ on the cross. We've been delivered. We are new creations, the scripture says. The old has passed away. All things have become new. Good, good uh, truth in that. So that's the enemy that is on the without side. We know that that enemy will come against us. We can have victory over that enemy. Now the second enemy, however, that I want to look at, they're the Philistines. And the Philistines, as we have read in the Scripture and we looked at in the Scripture, from the days of the judges, when Joshua had led them in and the judges were ruling the nation up until the time of Saul as the king, the Philistines, uh, an enemy from within came against Israel, came against Israel and continued to come against them. We saw in verse 1 of our passage that David defeats them. And notice, he also captures their capital city. Now, in 1 Chronicles, their city is listed as Gath. In the parallel passage of 2 Samuel chapter 8, the city is not called Gath, but it's called Methagamah. You can look at chapter 8, verse 1, and it says, And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, the, the word Methagamah, it can be translated the bridle of Amah. Now, a bridle is uh, a device that is put on horses, which is simply, it's a piece of equipment used to direct and ultimately to control a horse. And that's what the Philistines had been to the nation of Israel. They want to move in this particular direction here, but they were bridled by the Philistines. No, you can't come in this particular direction. Okay, this is our land, but I'm not allowed to go into that particular area because an enemy lives within that particular land. So they had limited, if you will, the nation of Israel from fully possessing the land that God had given to them. And David, as I said earlier, he looks at this and he said, no, what do we, no. These people aren't going to live within our country that was promised to us by our God and limit what God would have us to do. Forget it. Everybody strap on your armor. We're going out to battle and we're getting rid of them. I appreciate that. Because here's the connection, I think, in our Christian walk. We've been delivered from sin. The scripture says that if you are a follower of Christ, if you've come to the edge of the foot of the cross and you looked up at Jesus there on the cross and you said, what you're doing on that cross, you are dying in my place. 
The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. I accept your gift, God. I want to be forgiven of my sin. What the Scripture teaches then, if that is what's happened in your life, what the Scripture teaches is that you have been delivered from the penalty of sin, that you won't go to hell when you die, but that you can spend an eternity with Christ in heaven. That's the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. But it also says that you've been delivered from the power of sin. That is a wonderful truth this side of heaven. I think we'll really get excited about being delivered from the penalty of sin when we're in heaven looking at Christ face to face. And then we're like, whoa, this is what it meant. I thought I knew what it meant, but this is what it meant. This is fantastic. But the great news for us as believers on this side of heaven, here on planet Earth, is that we have been delivered from the power of sin. That we don't have to give in to it. And again, as we go back to this idea of those temptations and all those things that so easily beset us, as it says in the book of Hebrews, we do not have to give in to those things ever again. But we have victory. Again, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And I think the battle against the Philistines is a battle in the Christian walk against those areas of sin that are found within each one of us. Those areas of sin that other people don't necessarily know about has nothing to do with the temptations that are out there. That pretty girl or that lady that makes me mad or that this or that that. But it has to do with what's going on with inside of me and where I'm feeling led to go astray. That's limiting me from going forward in my walk with Christ. We know, the Scripture teaches, that we will come under attack as a believer. It is certainly not the desire of our enemies, quote-unquote, that we would have a flourishing walk with God. And the enemies that we have that are given to us in the Scripture, some of them are without, like the Moabites. The Scripture says that that is the world and that that is the devil. And the devil himself and the world system that is going away from the things of God are going to come against our faith so that we fail. We also know that we have another struggle, and that's found within, and that's our flesh. Some versions call it the sinful nature. Some versions call it the old man. So whether you call it the flesh, the sinful nature, the old man, all of these things from within are coming against us so that we would fail, if you will, in our efforts to walk with God and move forward. That we'd be bridled, if you will, limited from all that God would have for us. So there's an enemy that lies within. I would suggest to you that the bridle, the chain, you want to call it that? We'll call it a chain that limits us from moving forward to where God has for us. You think of a dog. Some of us have fences for our dog and they can only go so far. Some of us, you know, spend all kinds of money. We get the electric fence and the dog runs it and gets pulled back and you laugh, you know, from your front porch or whatever it may be um, or something like that until he figures it out not to run close to that thing again for some reason. Um, but other people have a chain. And they put their dog on that chain, and the dog's out on the front lawn, and there's freedom as far as the eye can see. That dog sees freedom. No fences, nothing hinder me. I'm going to go for a run someday. And then he goes out for a run, and he realizes he can only go 20 feet or so because it's a chain that jerks him back or her back, that little dog there. And I think for many of us, there's a chain that limits us in our walk with Christ. There is something there that is hindering us from moving forward. It's bridled us. We want to see an increased prayer life. We want to see a more effective devotional time where we really feel like we're meeting with God. We want to be used by God in other people's lives but feel like we're not being. We want to have victory over those just consistent areas of sin. You know, we, we get all motivated. We go to work, and I'm going to be nice to everybody today. And it just doesn't end up that way at the end of the day. And you've been mean to people again. People wondering about you. Why are you always so mean? You, you're the reason I'm mean. I don't like you. You know, whatever it may be. And stuff. And so, you know, all of a sudden we come back and we're like, man, I, I blew it again today. I failed again today. 
And what I would suggest to you is there is a chain that is hindering many of us in our walk. And, and part of the reason why I know this is because for the first about 16 months of my walk with Christ, there was a chain that limited me from moving forward. Interesting, that chain was a chain that I put on. Christ had set me free. He had cut the chain, so to speak. But I still had a little bit dangling, and I went back, and I hooked it up, and I stayed in this spot. And I went nowhere in the first you know, 10, 12 months, 16 months of my walk with Christ. I think I was a Christian. I believe I was saved, but I certainly wasn't moving forward. And then someone came along and said, you know what, you should cut that chain. She can go run around the neighborhood and be free, to use our dog analogy there. Now that, that uh, chain in my life had to do with sexual sin. But in other people's lives, it could be anger. In other people's lives, it could be the uh, seeking after and accumulating wealth. It could be anything. You know your life better than I do. But you know that there are probably areas in your life that have become more important to you than your relationship with God. And you said, you know what, I'm going to sit right here. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to hook myself up with this chain, and I'm not going to move forward. I'm going to allow myself to be limited. I'm going to bridle myself, so to speak. And so I want to encourage you in this. And, and then another thing, I'll, I'll share this as well. When I unhooked the chain, it was uh, October of 1980, whatever. It was, it was October of my freshman year in college. I don't remember what year it was. But I finally remembered, I got around some other believers that were seeming to walk with the Lord, and their faith was challenging me. And I was seeing how they seemed to be growing in their faith and weren't being limited by things. And I said, you know, I don't want to be limited either. And it was that area of sin, I cut the chain, and then my faith just took off. But what I discovered was, I, I kind of took off, and then God said, great, you're doing wonderful. Now I got another area that I want to reveal to you. There's another area of sin in your life that seems to have mastery. And it's chaining you down from moving any further. Are you willing to deal with that chain? And at first it was like, no, I'm good. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like it right here, or whatever. But soon enough, in my effort to pursue Christ, I realized, you know, he, he's moving forward, and I'm stuck back here. And so we cut another chain, and then I moved forward, and then God revealed another area. I, I forget who it was. I think it was Moody uh, who said, that, uh, whoever, it doesn't matter, but he said, dead men don't wrestle. If you're not continually struggling, if you're not continually discovering in your life these chains that are hindering you from moving forward in your walk with Christ, then you have to wonder, am I really real with God? Am I letting him expose every area of my life? Because the Lord kind of takes you through these seasons where he's exposing you. I sort of compared it to, you all right there, Rich? Yeah, all right, good. I understand. Uh, I sort of compared it to sort of like a stairwell. You know, and, and you, you get on that, that landing, I believe it's called, called, and you're kind of there and, and things are comfortable. But the Lord says, I want to take you up that rise. And you're like, that's ah, a high rise. I don't know if I want to go up it. But you do, and then you get on another landing. And you go up another rise, and another landing, another rise, another landing. The Lord just keeps growing us, and growing us, and growing us. And David here, he goes on the offensive. He looks at the Philistines within the land, and he says, no, no, this is absurd. I'm dealing with it. And so I want to encourage you. Maybe you're feeling a little stagnant in your walk. That stagnancy, is that a word? I think it is. That stagnancy is that rise of the stairwell. And the Lord is basically call, saying, take inventory. Look at your life. What are those areas that you need to give over to my lordship and my mastery? It'll start all of us with one, one big area that seems everything else hinges from, 
But then it continues to go on. Take inventory of your life. Look and see what it is that has become your bridle. That thing that is limiting you from going out on the offensive. David defeated these two enemies. Philistines first, that's significant. You had to deal with the battle within so that the temptations can be dealt with from without. He goes on the offensive. So maybe you're sitting here and you said, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it. What do I got to do? I want to cut that chain. What do I have to do in my life? Well, the answer is this. The answer is that you have to put them to death. Those things in your life that are causing you to stumble and fall and prevent you from moving forward, your response has to be, kill them. Put them to death. Nail them to a cross. This is what the Apostle Paul said, Colossians 3, chapter 5. He said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put them to death. Now you might hear that and you might say, well, that's kind of harsh to put these things to death. Can't I sort of just like wean myself off of them? You know, stop doing them as much as I used to do, these sorts of things. Well, Paul anticipates that and he gives us reason. Romans chapter 8, he says, if you live according to the flesh, even just a little, he says, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Speaking spiritually here about your walk. You want to have a living walk with Christ? Or you want to have just sort of a chained down, going nowhere sort of walk with Christ? If you want to have a living walk with Christ, you need to put to death the works of the flesh. Some of you, perhaps, you're thinking, you know, I'm not sure I agree. I think I can be a good Christian and still live, you know, this way and with these little bit of compromises, that sort of thing. Well, then I would turn your attention to Paul's words in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, 24, he says, All those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. What sort of walk do you want to have with God? If you want to have a walk that is moving forward, if you want to belong to Christ Jesus, so to speak, if he's going, you're going along with him, nothing hindering you from, and keeping you back, well, then you need to crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. Those are the Philistines in your life. And you need to put them to death if you want to move forward in your walk with Christ. Do you know what that area of sin is in your life? You probably do. You probably know about it. You've probably been thinking about it for a long time. You know what? I've got I to stop this. I've got to put it away. I can't fool around with this any longer if I'm going to move forward. Has God put a finger maybe this morning on that thing that is keeping you hin- and hindering you from going forward? My encouragement to you, give it to Him. Give it to Him. Tell Him today, I'm done with it. I remember. I remember the day. I was babysitting my cousins on the farm down in Lawrence where I used to work, uh, not too far from Lawrenceville Prep. And I remembered the day that I finally got sick of my sin. I finally got sick of that chain that was hindering me. And I said, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. That didn't mean that I didn't fail again here and there um, in, in my walk with God. But it meant that I was tired of giving into it and I was done with it. And that's when my walk with Him took off. So I encourage you, tell him the day you're done with it. Confess it as sin, which I did. Acknowledge it as such. Acknowledge how destructive it's been in your walk with God and God's ideal for you. And then kill it. And bury it. And don't put a marker on it so that you can go back and visit it again. Be done with it. And when you do those things, as I did them and I continually do them each day, when you do those things in the sincerity of your heart, 
you will notice suddenly there's a little more freedom. And nothing is holding you back. Nothing is hindering you. And you can move forward out into the freedom of your neighborhood, so to speak. Again, to use that dog reference. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, we...